Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, For some of you who were not here this morning, uh, my name is Michael Johnson and my wife, Diana, who is sitting here, and our son from Texas has come up for the day, which we're excited to see him. Uh, We don't get together so very often, and uh, it's been a real blessing to to be with you once again. Uh, Some of you may remember that Diana and I uh, were here uh, back in July, and um, we were uh, uh, sharing with the church here something about discipleship. And um, uh, Pastor Marty, uh, some weeks ago, called and asked me if I would, we would come back again and go through an entire process of how did Jesus disciple the 12 apostles. He first met them, and the, if you were here this morning in the first session, we talked about how Jesus met them for the first time. And the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 19 to the end of the chapter, gives the record of five days of where Jesus met his very first disciples. Now, one of the things that we will learn, and, and, oh, and I hope that all of you got this uh, booklet, uh, which is, uh, will tell you exactly what we're going to do in this next hour. So this is going to be a, a, not your typical sermon. Um, I'm a teacher by, by trade, and, and we're going to go through... Uh, the second session that is listed here in your outline, you can follow it. But if you go back a little deeper in that booklet, you'll come across a harmony of the Gospels. Now, a harmony is taking the four Gospels, blending them together in chronological order. And we do that because we wanted to know, how did Jesus disciple these guys? When Jesus first met Peter, for example, he was a fisherman. He was a businessman. He had his own little company. And we know that, that his brother Andrew was working with him. We also know that James and John were all part of the same outfit there on the Sea of Galilee. And while they, they, they were concerned or interested in religious things, they had never met Jesus. And then one day, if you turn to John chapter 1, you can see exactly how that happened they met Jesus, and they put their trust in him as the Messiah, not as the Savior because Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross at that point. Three, a little over three years later, the, Jesus ascends back to heaven, and he puts the responsibility for reaching the world for Jesus Christ in the hands of 12 men. Now, what happened between that period of time and when they first met Jesus. Jesus discipled them in a very specific manner. And we have 89 chapters of the New Testament that tell us exactly how he did that. What did he do first? What did he do second? What did he do 15th? And so on. Now, if you look at this harmony, that's what that tells you, the order in which Jesus did stuff. And... um, the big black marks, I was t- explaining this morning in the first hour, Jesus changed his approach to discipleship six times. Six times. He, 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 did, he was doing it this way, and all of a sudden he said, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to do it this way. And it, became, it, 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 it looks like six phases of spiritual growth in the lives of these men that turned the world upside down. And so what we're doing is, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you have received Jesus Christ, you are in one of those six phases (laughs) right now. And so as we go through these six phases, I want you to analyze your own self. Do I have the the, the characteristics of a person in phase five? The thing that we finished with just in the previous hour was that there were were specific characteristics of those people at the end of that that first phase. Do you have all of those in your life? I think they're actually listed here, if I remember. Right? Did I put those in there? Yes, I did. Okay. So so you have characteristics that you can examine your own life do, have I experienced the change, for example? Have, before I, was in, I knew Jesus, I'd lived this way, and after I met Jesus and embraced him as my Savior, things changed. I don't have the same vocabulary. I don't tell the same dirty jokes. I don't go to the same places I used to go to. I talk differently. I spend my free time going to church, 
Never went to church before, but now I want to be with other believers. Those are characteristics of a person who's come to know Jesus as their Savior. And if you have those five those characteristics in your life, you, you've already completed phase one. Let's move on to phase two. Well, I just want to introduce a little bit of our, since there's plenty of people here that weren't here in the first hour. Um, as you heard, my name was Michael, and uh, Diane and I have been missionaries for uh, one month ago, we passed the 50-year mark of being missionaries in some of the most interesting places of the world. When we first went to the mission field in 1974, that was before most of you were born, <laughs> um, we, uh, we had the joy of living secretly in a communist country behind the Iron Curtain. We were among the first missionaries to ever try to do that. And we lived there secretly for seven years. And then we, were, we found out there were churches there, there were pastors there, and, and by God's grace, um, I was invited by these pastors to be their mentor. Now, I was just in my 20s, but some of these pastors were in their 50s and 60s. But they had never had someone to come alongside them and explain the Bible to them. And so we spent a lot of time just mentoring the leaders of churches and um, then we got, in, uh, got involved with a group of six Baptist churches in the northern part of the country. And um, there, just across the river, five kilometers away, three miles away, try, I know kilometers better than miles anymore, um, there was the city of Varajdin, a city of 80,000 people without a single person who had ever had met Jesus. Who'd, we didn't know of anyone who was actually a believer of Jesus Christ in the city of Varajdin. And so I started talking with these six little country churches. I mean, I'm talking small churches. There were 25, 30 people in this little village or in that little village. And we were starting bringing those six churches together. And we said, why don't you take the responsibility of establishing a church across the river? And they said, we've never thought of that. They speak a little different dialect than we do. We speak Mejumorsky language, and they speak just regular old uh, 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 I said it in English, uh, Croatian language, sorry. And, they, uh, and so they, they started to say, we're going to reach out to that community across the way. And they said, we need somebody who could do the, be the point person. And I said, well... We have this young man who's been living with us for about a year and a half, and we've been discipling him. I think he'd do a good job. His name was Misho. And Misho was hired by these six little churches to go into Varajdin and become the church planter and to start that work. Well, in the communist world, every church had a communist informer who was a good Baptist brother, and one of those Baptist brothers reported me to the secret police. And we had a very interesting time after that. The police came to our home every day for two months. And Diane and I sat through an interrogation process for two months. We knew our time was up. And we weren't going to be able to stay in. We'd been there seven years by this time. And uh, we were invited to leave the country that we loved. And we moved to Austria, where we, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, and we started a Bible college there for people that uh, were from Eastern Europe. And then over time started another college, uh, Bible college in Bulgaria, and I mentioned a few things about that this morning. But today I wanted to tell you that when I turned 70 years old in, 1960, uh, in 2016, um, I, I said it's time to retire. You know, well, I'm 70 years old. We ought to retire. So Diane and I retired for three months, and we said enough of that. Let's get back to work. And so uh, there was a pastor of our church over in South Carolina who wanted to get in God in, 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 involved in, in missions once again. And so the three of us started a ministry to refugees that were coming to Europe. In 2017, there were a lot of, 16 and 17, there were thousands of, 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 of people fleeing Iran fleeing Iraq, fleeing Afghanistan and Pakistan and other places, plus from some places in, in Africa, uh, in Somalia and in, um, and in Sudan and, and some of those places where there's war. And they were fleeing to Europe. And on the, on the edge of, of Europe, there were Greek islands. And we discovered a refugee camp 
on the island of Lesvos. In 2017, we started taking teams to work in the refugee camps. And it was an exciting ministry to see that, uh, and most of the teams were just people like you, church people, and we'd go over for one or two weeks, and then we would do, um, we would help out in the camps. We did a lot of physical work. It was hard work. In fact, I ripped my, uh, the muscle off of my uh, uh, elbow and shoveling gravel, you know. I mean, I'm a, I, we, by that time, we were getting old, and we were shoveling five dump truck loads of gravel one day, and it was, it was a lot of hard work. And then we would spend time, some of these Muslims would come and help us with our work. And then we'd build a relationship. And then we'd start talking with them about the most important thing in the world. And what do you think that would be? Jesus Christ. And Muslims, you see, they know some things about Jesus. The Quran actually talks about Jesus. But it says specifically that Jesus is not the Son of God. And he did not die on a cross. And there are things that they do not. They said, he's a great prophet. He's a good man. And, but he's not the son of God. And he's certainly not your savior. And so the Quran teaches against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last September, we were invited to go to another island and work in a different uh, a refugee camp. And the, there was something very strange about this camp. In all of the years that we had gone, and we took over 300 people to work in these refugee camps over from 2017 up until last year. And when we got to this other island, and it was a different camp, we'd never been there before, you know what we discovered? It was full of Palestinians from Gaza. Hmm. What's happening in the, war, in the, world, in the world of Gaza today? And for some reason, in all of those years, six years before, in all of those trips to those refugee camps, we never met a Palestinian. We had oh, lots of people from Afghanistan. And I had worked in Afghanistan previously and, and, uh, and did some humanitarian work and evangelistic work in Afghanistan and, and, and also in Iraq, in, in Iraq and in, in other places. And so we met people that we knew, I mean, in the sense that we, we had worked with their, in their country and we'd shared the gospel with people in those countries in the past um, and um, never came across a Palestinian from Gaza. And now, just it happened to be in September, this past September, we were in this camp, and it was full of people from Gaza, not just Palestinians, but from Gaza. And we rubbed shoulders with them, and we helped them, and we worked in the camp, and, and, and we became friends with some of these Palestinians. And that was a wonderful thing. I mean, we had really enjoyed just getting to know some of these people. Little did we know what was going to happen two and a half weeks later, on October the 7th. You know what happened, that that the Hamas in, 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 in the Gaza attacked Israel, and then we got into this big war. I think they knew something was coming because this was three, two or three weeks before that they came to that camp. Today, that camp is packed full of people from Gaza. Over 4, 000, About 4,000 people are in that camp today. Now, while we were there in September, we met a very unusual man. I'll call him Mohammed, okay? Um, Mohammed was uh, in his 30s, late 30s, um, and um, he grew up in a refugee camp in Syria. As a little boy, his mom and dad moved from Palestine and went up to, to uh, Syria, and his, his mom was a Palestinian and his dad was a Syrian, and they lived just outside the city of Aleppo. Now, some of you are, I, I met Brian this morning, he was a military man. Um, you know what happened in Aleppo. That's, that was one of the headquarters of ISIS. And this guy, uh, which I call Muhammad, he grew up in a refugee camp as a little boy and, and then became a full adult. And then he went and he, uh, to work in Moscow because there's no jobs in Syria. And so he went to Moscow to work in one of those constructions of building a big, one of these big apartment complexes up here. And while he was there, he heard that it's possible that a few people have escaped by going by foot from Moscow up to the Finnish border and sneak across the Finnish border from Russia into Finland. And they got into the Western world that way. And he and another buddy decided they're going to do that. Now, the distance from Moscow to the Finnish border 
is something like going from Oklahoma to Nevada, something like that. It's like eight or 900 miles, and they walked, and they walked, and they walked. It took them a long time to get there, and because it's illegal for them to be outside of that little fence where they were working on the construction project, if they, ever, if, if, uh, they were in danger of being captured. And so they had to walk at night, and they tried to, um, uh, they got up to the Finnish border, and then they saw that it was an opportunity to get across the border um, and, uh, and to escape into Finland. They were being shot at by the, um, by the Russian military as they tried to cross across. It was a, quite a long run. And he said it was quite about, about 15 uh, uh, kilometers, about seven, eight miles, uh, eight, ten miles, that they ran to get across the border. And um, there was a church there took them in. Some people who said, okay, we're, we're going to receive these foreigners from Syria, from other places. And this church took them in. And over a period of time, Mohammed came to know the Lord Jesus Christ through a Finnish church. And he met a beautiful young lady who's, if you saw her picture, she, she's, she's a, a picture, a very blonde, uh, almost white-haired, blonde, beautiful young lady. And he married her and they have two children now. Now, Muhammad grew in the Lord. Somebody was discipling him. I don't know who it was, but last September, Diane and I met Muhammad on the island of Samos, which is only three miles from Turkish shore. It's a Greek island, only three miles from Turkey. If you've ever been to the ancient city of Ephesus, you know where that is. It's, Ephesus was only five miles away, two more miles inland. And, um, and so we were there working in this refugee camp full of Palestinians, and we meet Mohammed. He was not in the camp. He was living in the community, but he came as an evangelist to those people. And on Saturdays, he would, uh, people from the camp, refugee camp, would come to this little place. It's called Hope House in downtown Samos. And by the way, Samos is a beautiful place, <laughs> right on the Aegean Sea with Turkey just across the way. I mean, it is fabulous. If you ever want to go on a great vacation, go to Samos. <laughs> it's cheap, and it's also absolutely beautiful. And uh, on Saturday, Mohammed uh, would, would invite people to come to meet uh, uh, to, to, for him to preach. And so at that time, 20, 30 people would come, maybe. I talked with Mohammed yesterday. That's the beauty of Zoom, you know, or Skype. And I talked with him for about an hour yesterday. And, and, and you know, yesterday, they have their services on Saturday because they're, they're, these are reaching Muslim people. Not Sunday is not their day. Sunday is a regular work day in the Muslim world. So they met on Saturday morning. And he said 150 Palestinians came to, to hear the, the gospel of Christ yesterday. And... Um, and, I, and we were listening to him, and he says, I preached for four hours. He said, the, the, the room, and we know that room because we've been in it, will only hold about 30 or 40 people. And so what happens is they have the other people sitting out, standing outside, and he preaches to these 30 and 40, and he says, all right, now you get out, and the other 40 come in, and he does that. He was preaching for four hours yesterday to different groups. This is just yesterday. And then he told us an interesting story. He said a couple of weeks ago, we were, we were preparing to baptize a group, a group of uh, people who had accepted Christ, Palestinians who had accepted Christ. And he, um, and he said, uh, I got a phone call from this one guy. He says, I hear you're about to baptize my brother-in-law, and I want you to know you will not do that. You will not bring shame upon my family by him leaving Islam and becoming some kind of a follower of Jesus or whatever that means, I don't know. And he says, you will not do that. And Mohammed's talking to this guy on the phone, and he realizes that the guy is actually in the camp. <laughs> he thought he was, his phone number was a, uh, was a, the area code and the country code were from Gaza. So he thought the guy is still in, in Gaza, but he actually was in the camp. And he, this guy is threatening Mohammed. And he says, you do that. I will stop you. You will not baptize my brother-in-law and bring that kind of shame upon, this, upon our family. And Mohammed is such a, he's such a, a gentle person. And he says, why don't we get together? Let's talk. 
And he says, okay. And he says, let's meet tomorrow evening. And Mohammed's told us, he says, I was very careful. I made sure that we were going to meet after the last bus to the camp. And that means he, he, he can't go back. He's dependent upon me driving him back to the camp. It's about a 20-minute drive back to the camp. And he said, I did that on purpose. <laughs> Mohammed's such a smart guy, you know, he's incredible. And he's a very simple guy. I mean, he's, he has very little education. I mean, he's, I think he might have finished at high school at the most, but I think he had at least eighth grade education, and that's all. But he knows the Bible, and he knows the Lord Jesus, and he shares this with people. And this was just yesterday. And he said, um, this man came, and, he just, and Mohammed said, I, I better not meet him by myself. And there was an American guy that was working in this, it's called Hope House, the same place where they hold the services. And he says, would you go with me? <laughs> and he's sort of a big guy, you know. And he thought, well, we don't know what's going to happen here. Because, um, and so the, the two of them went. Now, the American doesn't speak uh, uh, Arabic. Uh, this is all in Arabic language. And so Mohammed, instead of this guy getting angry shares the gospel with him. He says, I want, you know, I want you to know what we're going to, you know, with your family member, what, we're, what we, this is all about. He says, I want to know. And he says, okay, let me tell you. And he ends up leading him to the Lord. And yesterday he was baptized. <laughs> the guy that was going to threaten him and the brother-in-law were all baptized yesterday. Praise God. Amen. Three weeks ago, Three weeks ago, Muhammad told us 400 Palestinians came to church. And in a little room, it only holds a a 40 or 50, a 30 or 40. And they put 100 people, they took all the chairs out, and you just stood there. You know, and you're, you're standing next to a guy like this. And he preached from 1030 in the morning till 730 at night. All these little groups, and these 100 would come in. They said, all right, you leave, and the next 100 come in. And he has the Jesus film in Arabic being shown in the, in the, room, in the other room while the people are waiting for the, for the message. And during the service, people wanted to, to receive Christ. There's a revival going on. That's not on CNN or, or, or Fox News, but that's what's happening in the other side of the story of this whole war and going on in that part of the world. And I praise God. God draws people to himself. And you know, Ephesians chapter 1 says this, God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before God. Now, I don't know about you, but there's two things I can't do on my own. I can never be holy, and I certainly am not blameless before God. But that's what he, the gospel does. It makes you holy. It makes you blameless before God. Because Jesus takes your sin and my sin and he put it upon the cross and covers it with his blood. And, and we have salvation today. And you ought to be just as excited. There are Palestinians today rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ on the small island of Samos in Greece. And we ought to be thankful for that. And, we, and, and he's now meeting with these guys, discipling them, helping them to grow in the Lord. And there's a whole slew of them now because he's been doing this for the, the last two or three months, ever since the war started. War has a way of drawing people to the Lord Jesus Christ because they face death. And you want to know, what is going to happen to me when you face death? Now, I've, Diane and I, we were involved in the war in Bosnia because we spoke those languages. And, and, and we, were, we were there to bring uh, medical aid to the, to, to the people, but I would only go in if we could serve on all three sides, the Serbian, the Bosnian, and the Muslim sides. And we did that because we spoke those languages. And, 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 and so we were able to share the gospel there, and in the results of that, over five churches were planted after the war. And so God is at work in different parts of the world. By the way, I will tell you that Mohammed goes back to um, Aleppo quite often. In fact, he was telling me this was back on about the October the 12th. The war started on the 7th, and this was five days later. He was in Aleppo, and he brought aid to the people there, food and money to buy food for the people, the Muslim people there. And um, while he was there, Israel shot rockets into Aleppo. And his, ho- his father's house is right next to the airport. And 
Israel was trying to demolish the airport. And so the rockets were falling very close to where he was. And he said a whole bunch of us began to run because those rockets, are, they don't always hit exactly the places you want them to. And, um, and, and, and so the, there were a whole group of them were running. And the second rocket exploded very near where they were. And then Mohammed tripped over some rubble. And he hit face down on a piece of concrete and broke 27 of his teeth. And the rest of the group kept running. And the third rocket hit that group and 10 of them were killed. And he said, God spared my life, but at a cost of 27 teeth. <laughs> Yesterday, his teeth were as white as could be. He has all new teeth. <laughs> Because God provided a way to get his teeth repaired since October. And, um, and, and uh, I couldn't help but say I've never seen a, uh, I've never seen a, a, a Muslim guy with such white teeth. <laughs> but I loved it. He's a dear brother. Now, what is conversion? What does it mean to receive Christ? What's happening in that camp happened in this church and happens in your life. If you have received the Lord Jesus, you know what I'm talking about, right? I hope you haven't lost your joy <laughs> and your excitement to be in the Lord Jesus. And, and, and I, I, I wonder, have you had the pleasure of leading someone to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you had that pleasure? I, I was going to ask you to raise your hands, but I, I won't do that. But think about that. Okay, I've received Christ, but then have I had the chance to give that to somebody else besides your own children? That's a great joy. Isn't it just a wonderful thing to be able to share the gospel? But here's the question I want to ask you. Do you know how? Do you know what to say? What are the key elements of the gospel that we need to share with the non-Christian world or with maybe your neighbors or with the people that you meet? Um, and many times I have found that people who are truly born again, they're truly saved, but they have a hard time knowing how to articulate that to the non-Christian world. And I want to talk about that a little bit today because that's a big part of discipleship. When you move into phase two, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, being able to share the gospel and to, and to understand it yourself becomes really important. And to be able to share that with someone else, you need to know what should we say? What are the five key elements of a church, uh, of salvation? I was in a church over in that country where we used to live secretly, and there was a small little church, a village church with about 25 people in that church. And I, they asked me to come and teach them something. And, and when I got there, the, the, the old elder, I asked him, I said, what do you want me to speak about. He asked me to come up for a weekend, and I thought, what, what, do you, what, what do you want me to do? It's a Saturday. We were gonna, the whole church was there, and we were going to have two or three hours together, and, I, and he never told me what he wanted me to speak on. And I asked him, and he said to me, and I'll never forget it, uh, his name was Stefan, and Stefan said, I can't think of anything I don't know. <laughs> I thought, okay, all right. <laughs> So I said, well, I tell you, what, why don't we do this? Divide up in couples. And you might even want to do this sometime in your own home. We won't do it now. I said, divide up in couples, and, and one of you tell the other person how to be saved. What do you need to know, do, or believe to be, to be saved? What do you need to know, what do you need to do, and what should you believe in order to be saved? And they were talking among themselves, and they, they did it. And, and as I was walking, now this is in a, their language, and as I was walking around, I went, oh my goodness, I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that. And I said, uh, I think we got a problem here. So after they had already done that in about 20 minutes to, to do that, I said, let's put it all on the board. Let's uh, we'll do it as a group. And there's like just 25 people in this little bitty group here. And I said, okay, what's the first thing that a person needs to know, do, or believe to be saved? You know what the, the old, the old uh, elder said? Baptism. It's a Baptist church. So I wrote on the board, baptism. You know, Christenia is in, in their language. And then the second one said, no football on Sunday. I mean, soccer, you know. No football on Sunday. 
no makeup, women. Okay, no makeup. These are all things. We filled that whole whiteboard with things that people are supposed to do to be saved. And afterwards, I said, no, that's very interesting. I said, first of all, is this good news for the non-Christian world or bad news? And they said, well, I think that's bad news. (laughs) We're talking about changing the way you live. And I said, I I thought Jesus had something to do with salvation. And he he says, oh, we forgot Jesus. (laughs) And then I said, well, I thought the cross had something to do with salvation. We forgot the cross. Are you sort of like that? We have, we know what it, we don't know how to explain to a non-Christian how to be saved. So I want us just to walk through. There are five key elements. There are five key elements. Is this thing working? I'm not getting any, any PowerPoint. Maybe it'll come up. Ah, five essential elements of the gospel. There you go. Thank you. And, um, and uh, uh, there are five key elements that you must, a person must know or be able to do or to believe in order to be saved, okay? So is, is that complicated? Well, let's see. The first one is standard. Can you go to the next slide? I'm pushing, but it's not doing it. Okay. The standard is who is God? Now, when I was a young man, and that was back a few years, um, most people in America believed in God and had a pretty good idea who God was, you know. But when you go to the Muslim world, they have a different view of God. They have a, they're talking about a God that's not the God of the Bible, but it's the God of the Quran. Oh. And, there are, and while they say, oh, we believe in the same God, the truth is they, we don't. And I've been able to, say, to open up the Bible and I said, okay, one characteristic between Allah and the the God of the Bible is John, 1 John says, God is love. And a Muslim would look at that and go, what? What? He said, God is love. And you look at John 3, 16, what does it say? For God, so what? Loved the world that he gave his own. They have no concept of a God of love. So how can that be the same God? God of Islam is a capricious God. He changes his mind anytime he wants. Everything that happens is Allah's will, including, you know, shooting rockets on each other and killing each other. One of the, one of the Palestinians that we got to meet there um, was um, an assassin, and he was a true uh, Hamas assassin. And, 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 you know, you meet a guy like that, and you just want to spend time with him. You know, it's just like, man, I'd, I'd like to get to know you. I've never killed anybody. And, uh, and, you know, you want to talk about some things. And then you say, well, you know, maybe you should look at a different part of life. Have you ever looked at Jesus? You know, somebody killed him too. He was assassinated on a cross. And you, and you take what this man is and uh, 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 what is important to him and you put the gospel inside of it. And what do you need to share? Number one, who is God? If a person doesn't know who God is, how in the world can he be saved? And, and you need to know the nature of God. Um, one of the first people that I uh, shared the gospel with when we first came to that country, and I, I was a, I, 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 we got our visa as a student in university, and um, I met another student, his name was Tomo, and I, and I started sharing, I'd memorized the four spiritual laws. Do anybody remember that from way back when, you know? And the first statement on that is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I told Tomo that. I said, Tomo, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And all of a sudden, Tom gets, what? He gets that look on your face like, are you speaking the same language that I'm speaking? Well, we'd only been in language study for about a year, and I, you know, and I thought, well, maybe I got my grammar wrong. You know, I mean, we got our, did I speak it right? And I told him again, and I asked him, I said, did I, do you understand those words? And he said, I understand all the words. I just don't know what it means. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't know what it means? He had never heard that God loved him. God of love? So foreign to this man. And, and we started meeting together every two or three days. 
And it about, took about three or four weeks of teaching the Bible where Tomo finally understood, God loves me. Those, those words are so foreign to many people in Oklahoma City too. We don't, people used to believe in the same God in the United States, but they don't today. There are many people and many young people who don't even care about God, you know? Just say, okay, maybe he's there, maybe he's not. I don't care. He has nothing to do with me. And that's, your, 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 that's the results of secularization and humanism in our society that the people today, you cannot assume that they understand the very first thing, that God loves you. And so we have to take some time to explain that. And to, and to show it from the Word of God. Now, I not only do I talk about that God is love, there are other two things I have found. I have found that when you do evangelism, there are three concepts about God that almost everyone will, ex, will, will accept. One, eventually they'll understand He's God, he, I mean that He's love. The second one, and sorry, I'm a European, so, you know, one, two, three. Um, uh, that he is a God of love, but he's also a holy God. If I've even had atheists say, okay, I don't believe there is a God, but if he did, he'd have to be holy, and he'd have to be love, and he would have to be just. Those are three things that almost everywhere in the world people will say, if there is a God, he's got to be those three, holy, love, and just. And you know, our God meets all three of those, doesn't he? He is all three of those. And so uh, that's part of the gospel. The second thing is, 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 is um, we have a problem. And um, for some reason, I'm not working here. Oh, my battery's low. Um, uh, uh, we have a problem. I'm not like God. I wish I loved purely, but I don't. I wish I was holy, but I'm not. I wish I could be just and treat people in a just manner, but I don't, and neither do you. That's what the Bible calls sin. But in a secular world, I don't use religious terms. You know, if you go to a lot of people here in Oklahoma City and say, you need to be saved, they'll, they haven't a clue what you're talking about. Saved from what? <laughs> What's going to happen? Are we going to have another building blown up or something? Is there a riot going to happen? What, what am I getting to say from? They don't understand our language. You need to be born again. People look at you like, uh, which funny farm did you come from? You know, they don't, Today, you cannot assume that people understand our vocabulary as Christians. So we have to be able to explain the gospel in words that they know. The standard, it's God. The problem it's you. <laughs> I'm not like God. And uh, I, 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 I'm not holy, I'm not love, and I'm not just. And um, most people, though, think that they're pretty good. Here's what the vast majority of the people, not only in America, but all over the world believe. And that is, could you show the next slide, please? Um, this thing is not working. Yeah, this is what most people believe. That you're going to put, that when you go to heaven, God's going to put all your good deeds on one side and all your bad deeds on the other side. And if, you're, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're okay. Now, I've done some survey work here in the United States in Wisconsin, going door to door asking people that question. And almost 90% of the people that I talked with said that. Said that if, uh, you know, and, and they'll say, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I, I don't beat my wife much. Uh, I, I, I don't uh, lie. Well, okay, on occasion, but you know, small white lies. They don't count much. And I don't, I've never stolen. I've never raped anybody. I've never murdered anybody. I've never done all these big things. I'm not, I, you know, I, I actually, uh, I've never even committed adultery. Well, well, I guess I did, but okay, that didn't count much. And you put your, your bad deeds on one side, but I do all these good things. I, 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 I give to wounded warriors. I, I, I work with Habitat for Humanity. I do all of these kind of things. I've, and I've got a family. I've got children, and I'm good to my kids. My kids are growing up, and I just love them. Oh, I just love them. Good deeds pile up. Is that really the truth? That's a lie of the devil. That's a lie of the devil. Now, here's why. 
God's heaven is holy. If I take my little sins and I take them into heaven, I've just ruined heaven. It's no longer holy. Holy demands 100% of purity. And the only way I can get to heaven is if I am 100% pure. And how am I going to have that done? And I've actually shared this with some guys, and they say, well, then how can anybody get there? And I say, aha, thank you for asking that question. The next slide, please. The solution. Jesus Christ did something for us. He died on the cross. He was, he was God. He was holy, love, and just. And he was crucified, and his blood covers my sin. So that when you go to the heaven, you don't look like this. It's God's, uh, Jesus Christ comes into our life, and the Father says, Oh, welcome, my son. Welcome, my son. Yesterday, we were talk, I was talking with Muhammad, and, and, and we were talking about, well, what have you been preaching on and talking about recently? And he said, well, the Lord has been leading me. Um, John 1, verse 12. Anybody remember it? For as many as received him, you know it, to them he gave thee the power to what? A son of God. For a Muslim, how can a human being become a son of God? That's impossible. I can never be a son of God. Oh, John 1.12 is like a bomb to Islam. It just blows it apart. And it just says, you can actually be a son of God or a daughter of God. You understand that, right? How many of you are sons or daughters of God? You know, yeah, that's right. We are. And we have so familiar with that verse, we don't realize the incredible impact that is in the Muslim world. You can be a son of God. And the father will always receive his son. And that's why he receives you. Because what was that, first, that verse that, that is in Ephesians 1 verse 4? God chose you before the foundation of the earth to be what? Holy and blameless before God. And that's why we have the right to go to heaven. It's because of what Jesus Christ did. That's the solution to my problem as a sinner. The next slide, please, the fourth one. The, there are conditions. What must you do to be saved? Well, you know what it is. It's to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. We must personally realize that our lives are wrong, that we are sinners. And most Americans don't like to say that. But we are. Just a few minutes ago, we all raised our hand and said, we are sinners. We, we know we are. And, and, and we need to embrace him by trusting in what he did on the cross. Now, trust is a tough word in many parts of the world. We discovered in America, for example, uh, most of you I don't know. But if I met you, I would begin by trusting you until you did something that broke my trust. Right? That's the way we do it. In the rest of the world, that's not the way it is. You don't trust anybody. You don't trust anybody until you prove that you are trustworthy. And you have to build a relationship that lasts for years before people say, I can now trust you. So trust in some parts of the world is very different than what we experience. And then there are results. What happens in the end? When you embrace Jesus Christ, what are some of the results? Anybody? What do you get when you embrace Jesus Christ? Yeah, okay, somebody said eternal life. Is that what I heard? Yeah, what else? Forgiveness? Yeah. You know, Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the most amazing chapters. If you read verses 1 through 4, you can spend the rest of the year studying it. And one of the verses in there says, and God lavishes us with forgiveness. It's like you're just wallowing in forgiveness all around you. You're taking a bath in forgiveness. That's what it is. And Jesus forgives all of our sin. Oh, brother and sister, there is nothing greater than that. 
to have a clean conscience, to have a pure heart before God, and to know you've been forgiven of all your sin. That's one of the major results. You also get to go to heaven. And you also, you know, you have brothers and sisters that are, that are important to you. You personally know God and you have eternal life. There's so many th- other things that happen. If you read through the entire New Testament, you'll find 20 or 30 things that happens when you accept Christ. <laughs> it's pretty cool. You get the Holy Spirit, for example. And the Holy Spirit comes and, li- and dwells within you. Wow, God dwells in me. That's pretty cool. And that's something that the rest of the world can hardly fathom but it is true. Well, let's move on and, um, um, uh, and into the next phase of discipleship, phase two. And um, that is called disciples are confirmed. And if you look at your, at your um, <clears throat> harmony of the gospels, you'll see where that begins. It didn't take long, phase one, but phase two went pretty quickly, started into it quite, really quickly. And if you look at John chapter one and two, chapter two says three days later, three days later. So phase one, so five days where they became followers of Christ, three days later, there's a wedding up in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus says, guys, let's go and, 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 and go to the wedding. And you know what happened there. Some important things happened. In phase two, four important things, several important things take place. One, Jesus spent a lot of personal time with them. Could you show that next side of the the map there? Yeah. Now, Cain of, uh, uh, Jesus was, uh, uh, sorry, John the Baptist was baptizing down at the bottom, almost to the Black Sea. And then they walked all the way up to Cana of Galilee for that wedding. That's 60 miles. Now, how long would it take you to walk 60 miles? Uh, probably take me a week or two. But anyway, I mean, you'd probably get there. But these guys were walking and all the time. Probably it'd take them, you know, 20, 20 miles a day. Take them maybe three days. What do you think they did on those three days? Jesus was walking along with his disciples. He's talking to them. He's teaching them. He's explaining stuff. They also had a lot of fun. I think they had a good time. I think there were times when they were sitting around the fire that somebody told a funny story and they just had a belly laugh, you know. I think they enjoyed each other. But it took them three days to get there to a wedding where Jesus did what? He turned water into wine. Now, if you look at chapter 2 of John you will see verse 11. Anybody want to look that up real quick? John chapter 2, verse 11. What does it say? Okay, they believed in him. Ah, you say, well, wait a minute. I thought they believed in him in chapter one, in phase one. They did. But now that faith is being confirmed. Jesus begins to do things that only Jesus can do. He begins to confirm in them, your faith that you put in Jesus as the Messiah three days ago is valid. We sang a song um, just a little while ago, and it talked about trials and doubts. Did you remember that in that song? And, and that's exactly what most new Christians have. After they are, uh, accept Christ as their Savior, it's amazing, three or four or five days later, they begin to have doubts. Why? Well, when they accepted Christ, it was so exciting. I was, had such joy and such peace and wonderful in my life, and now I don't have that anymore. Three days later. Maybe I lost it. Or they, or they fall into sin again. Or they, they, they meet another Christian who disappoints them. And it's very common that new believers, a few days later, begin to question whether their salvation is genuine. Anybody experience doubts in your own walk with Christ? Yeah, yeah. It's all over the place. Everybody waving their hand. Yeah, I have. 
And so Jesus had to deal with that, and he did it in several ways. One, he spent time with them walking around. How do we disciple people? We disciple people by telling them to sit still. Jesus discipled people by telling them to walk around. And, and so he did it differently than we do. We say, come to our church, sit here in this, chew, in this chair right here, and in 20 years of preaching, maybe you'll, you'll, we can, you can grow in the Lord, you know. That's the way we disciple people. Jesus took time with people, lots of time. And if you look at the next slide, we're going to see that, that he, not only did he go uh, to Cana of Galilee, he later on took them down to Jerusalem. That's 90 miles of walking. That's another several days. And there's where he cleansed the temple, and he met some guy named Nicodemus. Does that ring a bell? And then on the way home, he ends up in Sychar, up in the, up in the middle of, the, of, of Samaria, and he meets a woman at a well. And so these guys are walking around with Jesus for days and spending time with them. How important is it as a new believer that somebody spends time with you? Very early in the process. Second of all, they, their trust was put into, in Jesus because he, he, he performed miracles. And then thirdly, he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about him. And we'll pick that up in the next hour after lunch, okay? Now, we're going slow at this point. Put on your uh, speedy hats because we're going to go 90 miles an hour in, just in, the, in the next hours, okay? And we're going to go through five more phases in the next two hours. God bless you. Let's pray. We're so thankful, Lord, for the truth of the gospel, that it is real and genuine, and you change our lives. And I so thank you, Lord, that you have. And you give us righteousness, which is not ours, though. It's your righteousness that is, comes into our lives. And we have the right to be the Son of God. We have the right to go to heaven because we're your child. And you look at us as holy and blameless before God the Father. Oh, thank you, Lord. And I pray that all of us in this room have experienced that. And if you haven't, let today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.